Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. <laughs> yes, I can clearly see that I rolled a one. <laughs> While the Yeti determines my fate, I wanted to tell you about our friends at Sanity Damage. They're an amazing D&D actual play live show. The campaign features a high seas adventure full of piracy, steampunk, and Lovecraftian horror elements. You can find Sanity Damage on any podcasting platform or watch the party live on YouTube. Catch them bi-weeklies on Thursdays at 7.30 Eastern Time on YouTube at The Homebrew d and I'll throw it in the show notes to make it easy. Oh, and never let a Yeti be the DM. This is Byron O'Neill, your host for today's episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner. I hope everyone is having a good holiday season. I feel like we have an extra special gift for you because I'm sitting down with Cryptid Creator Corner veteran Steve Fox to talk about Marvel's new four-issue miniseries, The Dead X-Men. Steve, your life has been crazy, crazy busy lately. I know everybody's is. Holidays treating you pretty well. Yeah, I can't complain about the holidays themselves. It's a bit of a gauntlet to get there, uh, but taking it nice and relaxing these last few days. Good. Well, let's set the stage here for, for Dead X-Men. Um, I'll see if I can do a good job. So we're at the end of the Krakoan age and beginning a new era with these two intertwining series, the Fall of the House of X and the Rise of Powers of X, and Enter the Dead X-Men, where the, the fan fave Five Fallen, say that five times fast. <laughs> The, or the new X-Men candidates, Cannonball, Jubilee, Dazzler, Frenzy, and Prodigy, who were killed by kind of the ultimate Nimrod powerbomb during the Hellfire, Hellfire Gala. They were recruited by Professor X for a secret mission and bouncing around different key temporal locations and realities past in an attempt to find a solution that just might reverse the fate of Krakoa and things that happen. We have no idea exactly how they're resurrected at this point. So does, does that about sort of sum, sum it up? Yeah, that, I would I would give that like a 95%. Nice, okay. That is really the only the only tweak I would make is that. So uh, as you'll see in, in Rise of Powers of X uh, or Rise of Powers of 10, um, Xavier actually recruits a small team himself, and that includes Rachel Summers. And Rachel's in charge of this aspect of the mission. So it's Rachel who decides these five mutants are the ones who should be doing it. So okay. we, she's kind of the, the sixth dead X-Men, even though there's no dying involved at her bath. Right, because Juggernaut somehow got out of it. Yeah, well, he got out of it because the readers voted <laughs> that he should be the, the new X-Men. So yeah. uh, Jug- Juggernaut won, and what he got was uh, his life, life spared. <laughs> well, I've been lucky enough to get a chance to read an advanced copy of issue one. Um, didn't. Didn't go quite how I imagined, although I don't know what I exactly imagined. Um, you know, one of my beasts with uh, the Krakoan arc was that there was like, for me, way too much world building, you know, kind of which really moved along the maturity of kind of many of the faces that we've come to know and love. And it pumped up this new generation infused with, you know, modern diversity. All that's fantastic as it took the X Men franchise and, and made them current. But admittedly, I was kind of personally ready for something new, and you've pinned a fair chunk of that recently. First with Dark X-Men, you know, now with Dead X-Men. Um, Dark X-Men, I'm sure, has been kind of a delight for you to work on, given your love of the horror genre. And I was prepared for this to be actually something darker, kind of given the title. But it, it actually filled me kind of full of that youthful optimism and reminds me of everything that 
we love about a, a fresh new team, you know, getting its footing together. You know, even some of the core members are themselves old school. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of what pulled you into wanting to work on this project aside from, duh, I get to write another X-Men book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a powerful factor in anyone's decision. Of course. Uh, when, when the editor asks if you want to do another book. Um, but no, I mean, that that uh, delights me to hear you say that, that you know, that kind of the optimism of a new team. So I was asked to do this book um, before the Hellfire Gala issue came out, but after... Okay. After Jerry had, you know, decided the fate of these five. So we knew even before the fan response, we knew we wanted to do something with the five of them after, um, you know, delivering such a terrible fate during the gala. Um, Because they are all such classic X-Men characters. You know, you look at the three candidate rosters for the X-Men election, the first two contains more oddballs. Like, I don't know that anyone's like, oh, Micromax really needs his day in the sun. Right. Um, but these five and Juggernaut all have very long histories. The newest character there is Prodigy, and he's 20 years old. So yep. there's there's deep connective tissue, and it really already did kind of feel like an X-Men team uh, when you take just these five or you know these six with, with Juggernaut included. And what I would say to readers, because you're right, I love the horror genre. I'm, I'm very comfortable there. I love to explore that. Uh, I would say to readers... I didn't choose the title Dead X-Men. <laughs> I don't think that's I don't think that's shady to say. You know, it, it was a title that sales thought was was attractive given what happened to them. Um, but it it's not a sequel to Dark X-Men. It's there's no there's no follow-through there. You know, Dark X-Men was me doing the grand gothic thing for five issues with Jonas and Frank Martin, um, which was amazing. You know, I had such a blast doing such a uh, a creepy take on things. But Dead X-Men is really my love letter to like Claremont and Cockrum, like big space adventure, uh, a team of of X-Men who are diverse and interesting, but are not like heavy hitters in the power sense. You know, I've never been one to care about like power rankings. I know Twitter goes nuts for like, oh, this character should be an Omega. And oh, if they did this, then they're Omega. I don't care. That's not that's not it's just not a story. Um, but what I love about these five is that none of them are even approaching that. You know, they have a, a, a diverse collection of, of mutant talents, but no one's out here saying, oh, yeah, Frenzy's the Omega of, of punching things while she's mad, you know? So it, it just felt so pure to me in an X-Men sense of here is a, a five-member team of mutants against the odds in really crazy situations. Um, so this was my chance to, if if Dark X-Men was me trying to do horror and, and kind of channel the early 2000s X-Men comics I loved, this was me channeling like the 70s and 80s that, that formed the foundation of the franchise. Okay. Well, I'm kind of trying to imagine the challenge of, of dealing with writing this particular cast, because um, it's always interesting to see how groups kind of fit together. You know, um, this group, you know, Fans were heavily invested in, um, so you automatically have like this interest buy-in on a on a different level in terms of expectation, you know. And then we had one of the ballsiest moves I've seen in a long time in comics, where you know the Hellfire Gala hits the reset button. So, but rarely do you have X fandom kind of embrace collective acceptance of something in terms of like <laughs> how we react to it. But I think it's it's fair to say that was like everybody being like, "What the fuck just happened?" Right. Um, so in terms of process, kind of how did you envision this team clicking as a group? Well, so 
I knew going in this was four issues. And even with Dark X-Men, at the very beginning of Fall of X, there was like, oh, well, you know, maybe depending on how things fall, maybe, no pun intended, like maybe some of these books will continue. Let's leave a little open-ended. Like, we'll see. We had the roadmap, but you always want to build in some flexibility. At this point, we knew very firmly, okay, things are wrapping up in in June. Like we we know we know the the get off the train point. So knowing that we had four issues, 90 pages, um I really just wanted to celebrate the five of them. If I was building something longer with these five, if it was more open-ended, maybe you'd look for conflict points, you'd look for uh, ways the team can both clash and get along, you know, shortcomings, but because it's just these 90 pages, these five who kind of had their chance at being X-Men stolen from them mm-hmm. it was really just a chance to show what makes them great characters what makes them great x-men what makes them you know courageous brave mutants so it was less like oh would frenzy and jubilee clash about this would you know would cannonball be distracted from the team because of this and more of how can these five experienced mutants work together against overwhelming odds you know when readers get a chance to read rise of the powers of x and then this you'll see like the the conflict is big it's not like hey we got to go punch this guy really hard you know there's complicated stuff there's wheels within wheels um and so what appealed to me was putting these five in harmony against something very 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 different um whereas in dark x-men it's like, okay, well, these guys all hate each other. You know, this right. is not a this is not a team that's working harmoniously. This is not a tree a team that trusts each other. This is not a team that's gonna put their differences aside. These five are characters who are just like bone deep X-Men heroes. Yeah. Uh, and so this was a chance to really show that for them. Because it feels like they deserved it, you know, even though it's what well, there's that meme of the kid with like the boot on his face and yep. he's like oh, you know i'm so oppressed and he's doing it we chose to do this to these five characters you know we had them blown up by nimrod but we also knew pretty immediately that we were also going to celebrate them and give them a big big fun adventure that's hopefully hopefully makes up for that and shows how they can work together as x-men so was there any that going in was kind of a personal favorite of yours or anything I mean, it sounds like a cop-out, but I just love all five of these. Um, however, I don't think it's a secret that like Dazzler means a lot to me. Yeah. Um, even putting aside the joke of like gay people loving Dazzler, my very first exposure to the X-Men was Pride of the X-Men, um, which was the pilot animation before X-Men the Animated Series. And Dazzler was a core cast member of Pride of the X-Men. And then, of course, she barely appears in the animation. She's like in one arc. Um, so as like a four-year-old, I thought Dazzler was the coolest thing ever. She made such a big impact in me, on me. And then she's not in a lot of 90s comics. They kind of write her off for a while um, by like 92, 93. And then in the early 2000s, she was in a lot of kind of like tertiary books. Mm-hmm. So I, I connected to this character and then spent 20 years like not really being fed prime Dazzler content. <laughs> Sure. Uh, so it feels pretty surreal. It already felt surreal to get to do the short uh, for her for um, X Men Unlimited, the Infinity Comics. Um, you know, Steph Williams and I co-wrote uh, six little short stories, and just getting to do that for Dazzler felt cool. Just getting to have her in X Men '92 as a cameo felt cool. <laughs> so to actually write her for an entire adventure really felt kind of like a, a button on 
I don't want to say my life because it makes it sound like I'm dying, but my life as an X-Men fan, <laughs> like this, you know, from 1991 or whenever I got that on VHS to now. Yeah. Um, Dazzler holds a special place in my heart too. And, and I may be like telling you something you already know, but I'm, I'm going to try. See, like <laughs> last time you dropped knowledge about the origins of Spider-Woman, like, so I'll take a swing here. I, d- I don't know if you knew, but you know, the original designs for Dazzler were based on Grace Jones. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that 80s Dazzle run, definitely one of one of my favorites. Um, it was really cool because you had that. It was a different era and a different attempt in terms of a swing for Marvel to do that that thing where you're trying to do a hybrid between like a comics and a music time, you know, especially right there at, at the disco era dying. So thank God she didn't end up <laughs> disco Dazzler. Um, for sure. That's what I love too, is that she, I think there was a period of time, I always blame it on Wizard Magazine, and that's, no insult to Wizard Magazine, but I think that it had, uh, and I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to this that just have no idea what that even is, but in the That's 90s, so <laughs> that had a chokehold on like the comic conversation before everything moved online. Yep. And Wizard and, and Toy Fair, their sister magazine, they took so many pot shots at characters like Dazzler and Northstar and Toad. So I feel like there are a lot of characters that became jokes because of like surrounding media. But then you go back and you read, you know, Dazzler had like a 70-issue run. Uh, you read the original X-Men comic she's in. She's a great, multifaceted, complex, useful character. Uh, we just unfortunately took a detour where we're like, ha-ha, disco. <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> so I'm glad that she's getting, uh, you know, a little more respect on her name. And I think that applies to a couple of the characters. You know, Jubilee has gone through that too. She was the, the snot-nosed brat, mall rat. Um, you know, a lot of people had negative connotations for her because they thought she was the annoying sidekick character. So I, I like that these characters can all be celebrated and frenzy is all, I mean, I love all of these guys. Like there's not a dud in this bunch. That's the fun thing. Again, if you'd asked me to write dead X-Men with like the, the Micromax batch, I might've had a harder time, <laughs> like, uh, you know, delivering grand arcs for all of those guys. But for these five, like they all have such rich histories with the X-Men and they all have such rich histories in wanting to do good things. Was there anything that you were like, okay, I'd really like to infuse that element of, of the character into it, you know, I'm um, going expand upon it. You know, I, I think it was fun for me. So when I wrote X-Men 92 house of 92, I was channel and, Oh, and now it's public that I wrote X-Men 97 as well. A tie in to the new cartoon, you know, that's channeling that like Bradius version of Jubilee. I did find it fun to try to figure out the more mature take on that for dead X-Men. Like she's still the sassiest one on the team. You know, she's still the most, uh, I don't want to say impulsive, but she's kind of like the no nonsense. Like she's going to break the tension. You know, she's going to say what everyone else is thinking. So as someone who's climbing up in age myself, (laughs) Jubilee debuted the same year I debuted in 1989. So I think it was fun to try to find the more mature take on that without losing like her original zest for life. Yeah. Um, And then frenzy has always been a favorite of mine. The, the villain to principled actor arc, I think was always really compelling to me. Mike Carey did amazing work with her. Um, and even before that, when I, when I was a preteen, there's this tiny little arc before Morrison starts where Jean Grey has to assemble like a replacement team and Frenzy's one of them. 
So she's another character who like it it just made an imprint on me. And she's also someone who's she's touched every big bad. Like she worked for Apocalypse. She, you yep. know, she was an acolyte, but her drive was really always to do right by mutant kind. And especially as like a black woman in comics, I just feel like Frenzy's deserved the bigger spotlight for a really long time. And it's cool that she's she's finally climbed her way up there. And I, I really hope that's something that continues. Uh, into the next era. Well, I'm gonna. I'm, we touched on wizard there, so I want to. I want to. I want to have a wizard. <laughs> I want to have a wizard moment, right? Um, so I'm gonna take things in a bit of a different direction. I, people who don't do this, um, they don't have an idea of like the dance between an interviewer and a guest when it comes to these unreleased projects, especially with the big two. Um, so my questions can't be too direct with the obvious, and we can't. On the flip side, you can't give much away. So we'll do the wizard because wizard was always speculative on like the, the what ifs. So we're going to play the festive um, holiday naughty or nice. So hopefully this won't completely bomb. Um, but I'll drop dead X-Men team names and you come up with whether in the end they will end up being naughty or nice in the series. And hopefully that gives uh, people some some speculation room. How's that? Sound? Okay. Okay. Does that work? Yes. Um, so Dazzler. Rules. Dazzler. I'm gonna give her a little, a little tad bit naughty. Okay. Uh, Jubilee. She's nice, but in a spicy way. Well, that, that's normal though. That's <laughs> who she is, right? Um, Cannonball. Cannonball, pure nice. Well, this is like the total opposite of like Dark X Men. Yes. Um, Frenzy. Frenzy, lawful nice. Okay. Prodigy. Prodigy, there's a there's a bit of naughtiness that Yay. really influences the book. Okay, okay. And then well, I guess Rachel is tangential since she got to pick the team and plays a role. Yes, but Rachel's nice. Charles, on the other hand, naughty. He's always naughty. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's always been my take. Um Nightcrawler. Okay, that's just a joke because before uh-huh. you an- before you answer, I have no clue if Nightcrawler's in there. So. It, well, you you threw me for a loop where I was like, "Wait, did I write Nightcrawler?" <laughs> uh, oh, I'm trying to think what I know of Nightcrawler in other books. Night Nightcrawler's nice. He's he's kind of always nice. Yes. Yeah. Well, how much will the events of Dead X Men kind of tie into the broader storylines of Fall of the House of X and the rise of the powers of of Ten X? What am I? Is which is I actually, it, which, so I'm actually 90% sure it's Rise of the Powers of X this time, which I know okay. is confusing because Powers of 10 is what the first book is called. Yes. Um, so, you know, I feel like such a, um, a rascal because I always say, like, you know, I want things to stand alone, uh, yada, yada. This is pretty tightly interwoven with Rise of the Powers of X um, to the point where, like, you will see exact scenes reflected in both. Um, working so closely with Kieran throughout this has been really amazing. Uh, you know, he's a creator I look up to so much. Um, Mm -hmm. he's actually the very first creator I interviewed back when I was writing comic book journalism for Pace Magazine. Okay. Um, we talked when the Wicked and the Divine had just launched. So it's been very surreal these last couple months to be working so closely with him to determine how this is going to fit into Rise of the Powers of X. Uh, and he's been so generous in reflecting plot lines and building things back and forth. I mean, 
even Rachel's role in his book ended up changing when I had strong feelings about how I wanted to, to deploy her here. Uh, so it's been really cool to have that experience. And as much as every other time I say like, oh, you know, you don't have to read the larger event. Like you can just read this. You should probably be reading both. <laughs> uh, these are some big concepts. And um, what I can promise is that you're going to get very character focused work in Dead X-Men. Um, it's really about celebrating these five and Rachel, Rachel to a lesser extent because she didn't get squished by Nimrod. Um, it's about celebrating these five. It's about celebrating the Krakoan era and looking back on it. Um, you know, we work with a bunch of artists on this, eight different interior artists, and they're all artists who worked on different Krakoan projects. Um, so there is like, you, you could just read this and you'll get a satisfying 90 pages, but it ties directly into, you know, we, we hand the football off to Kieran in issue four and it goes back into rise of the powers of X. So okay. I would recommend people reading both. Gotcha. Yeah. And you're working with a group of artists on this. I, I'm kind of reading this as to lend different flavors into the mixture as we kind of bounce around from one time period to another. Yeah. But so I think enough is revealed now that I can say that each artist is drawing a different existence entirely. Okay. Uh, I was really, really excited that uh, my editors, Jordan White and Lauren Amaro were up for this. Um, Cause we knew just scheduling wise, we we're going to need to use more than one artist. And I sat down and I was like, you know, this is, we could really bake this into the book. Like we don't need to do artist one does it issue one artist two does issue two like we could really kind of make this work but it would be bonkers and you know i i have another career as an editor i i edit yeah. stuff for james tynan i edit stuff for first second so i kind of i i i overswung where i was like listen i think we could break this down like this yada 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 and to my great surprise and excitement jordan and lauren were up for it so uh every artist of the eight draws a different existence entirely. Um, Bernard Chang is in every issue. So he's drawing kind of the, the through line. Mm -hmm. And then um, Vincenzo Caracciu draws the big opening for issue one from Astonishing uh, Iceman. Uh, Jonah Scharf, my dark X-Men collaborator, he draws our cold open in issue one. Um, Bernard was, of course, on Jean Grey. And then in issue two, we have um, Guillermo Sana, who drew the Firestar arc of X-Men Unlimited. And we also have, um, I'm forgetting who did what issue now. Peter Nguyen, uh, Peter Wynn, I think is how it's pronounced. I'm terrible with names. Um, Peter Wynn, who did um, a Wolverine backup, he drew part of issue two. Lynn Yoshi, who did the Sunfire arc, drew part of issue three. Um, Javier, Javier Pina, um, who drew you know parts of X-Men, he drew issue three. David Baldion, who drew X Factor, drew part of issue three. And now if I'm forgetting someone, I'm going to feel really bad. But I think that's all eight. <laughs> because okay. then we go back for um, David, Vincenzo, and Bernard in issue four again. So each artist got their own distinct chunk to draw. Um, it was planned from the start. And there's no like, oh, we just need to fill in, yada, yada. It's, it's all mapped out. Um, I couldn't believe Marvel went for it. It also meant needing to write the book really fast because we need to get everyone working simultaneously. And wow. normally, you know, when someone is so like Vincenzo draws 
20 pages of issue one. So normally I'd know, okay, well, it's going to take him a month. So I've got a month to write issue two. He needed issue four a month later. <laughs> so I, I had to like speed through the book. Um, but it was worth it to be getting all these pages in at the same time and see such cool stuff. Yeah. How does that change your kind of approach to scripting? Cause that sounds manic and crazy. It only got a little manic for issue four um, because I was juggling Bernard's pace, Vincenzo's pace, and getting David Baldion started. Um, so that was one of the only times in my career I've written an issue out of order. But I work from really tight outlines on projects like this. So it would, it would say like, oh, page seven, this is what happens. I just hadn't written it yet. Um, but it was scary at times to to bake in like, okay, I know page or I know issue four is going to be seven Bernard pages and 13 Vincenzo pages. And I cannot change that because we've already committed to that. That's a little frightening. Um, thankfully, it worked out. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break. What in the Sam Hill is happening right now? What is that? Yeah, what you like bards? Yeah, what Oh, you like Band of Bards. It's not my fault, you mumble. That makes sense. They're dropping some great new series right now. There's that one about a heavy metal guitarist in the 1970s with monsters, working class wizards. You know how we love monsters around here. And my friend Dakota Brown, he's working on a project, uh, Grandma Tilly's Hell Tech Mech with Lane Lloyd. I saw the preview for that. That is crazy. Jimmy even contributed to their anthology from The Static and had Matt Sumo on the podcast to talk about his project, The Bardic Verses, which makes a lot of sense that the project landed there. Where can you find them? You need to get out more. They are in previews, or you can visit their website, bandabards.com, for all the latest. Can we turn the music off now? Thank you. No more surprises, minstrels, or anything like that, or I'll rent you out to the Ren Fair as a children's ride. Let's get back to the show. I actually really enjoyed the pacing and hearing you talk about how it's the the reference, the Claremont books and and everything kind of as a reference point makes a lot of sense. You know, we get a glimpse of things to come from the issue two cover, which included what looks to be like a big Ultron throwdown. Um, But I wanted to focus on the costumes because I like such things. Yeah. So I was reading that Wernick designed them as that homage to the the 90s outfits you know my favorite wolverine you know with the big yellow stripe you know <laughs> I, I love those the the yellow and infused costumes you know this is your third x-men miniseries and you know kind of as a, a next-gen writer of the series how do you approach maintaining that balance between the old and the new interpretations because it's you know we hear a lot out there it's increasingly hard with these icons to meld stories that will bring in that essential new generation of readers that we all want in the medium. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, maybe I'm not right. We all we want, but like <laughs> yes, we yes, yes. Um, but you're also dealing with you know six decades of history. So so how do you how do you strike that balance? Well, I'll tackle this in phases. Um, okay, because for me, like I just never want a reader to turn the page. And like not get a moment because it requires having read a bunch of other comics. Yeah. So it's tricky. You know, yes, this interweaves a lot with Rise of Powers of X, but these are on stands at the same time. I'm not going to throw something down where it's like, oh, you mean you didn't read 
the Mark Silvestri like Outback era, well, sorry, you, just, you know, this is lost on you. Those kind of things are fun for little Easter eggs here and there or little nods. Like if you get it, you get it, then it's additive. But, you know, I want, even if you've never read a comic with Jubilee, Dazzler, Prodigy, Frenzy, and Cannonball, you know, you'll come away understanding who these five are. And if you've read their whole history, then you're like, okay, yeah, that feels like the Cannonball I know. Um, so that's the, the balance I always try to strike. And especially in something like this, it is so propulsive once it gets going. Like it's kind of just a big adventure the whole time that it kind of lent itself to that. When it comes to the look, actually, we just got really lucky. Um, so Lucas Warnick is our main cover artist. Um, Perry Perez did the gravestone cover of issue one mm-hmm. that was intended to kind of tease the team, but Lucas has done all the main covers. And I knew that because we were going to have so many people drawing this at the same time, they needed to have looks that wouldn't get fudged between artists. Some of them, you know, I, like I love the Valerio uh, sh- shitty out. God. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but Valerio's <laughs> outfit for um, Frenzy from Sword is really cool, but it's also a complex design. You know, David Baldion's outfit for Prodigy from X Factor is really cool, but it's a complicated design. Uh, and when I saw the five of them together in their current outfits, it just wasn't giving like team unity because mm-hmm. they were touched by such specific artists. So actually, my proposal was to just do the Jim Lee jumpsuits from the 90s so i was like okay this is the end of an era we're celebrating a a whole era we're celebrating the history of the x-men let's just put them in those jumpsuits so it's like okay they're classic x-men they're in the blue and gold and every artist knows how to draw the blue and gold that's what we asked lucas and then lucas came back and was like i thought it'd be cool to give him new looks (laughs) so he just did that on his own and it was awesome i mean they all came out so cool uh, I love the little touch of like Jubilee has a pink jacket on top. So she's customized hers. Frenzy has no sleeves. Dazzler has a bit of a cutout. So there are little touches on each of them that make them more uh, individualized, but it still gives you that blue and gold team unity look. And especially if these five didn't really get their chance to be X-Men in the Krakoan era, having them all share a look here was an instant oomph of like, they are a team. Yeah, I mean, having read issue one, it also sets the tone for the narration because they're ready to throw down. Yeah, we start like in media res. Like they've already been on their mission when the first page opens. Like there's stuff we didn't see because we're just pedal to the metal. It really is. That's one of the things I found refreshing about it because we're the we're the Krakoa and there was there was a lot of stuff and and you had room for costumes because so much of what they were doing was, you know developing these these big plot lines but i mean okay now i'm the old guy in the room i suppose (laughs) but you know that that era of x-men where the hero was defined in the throwdown um and they were sort of already ready and you get their their character is expressed through peril as opposed to their character is expressed through politics i guess (laughs) if, if that makes sense yeah, and I mean I have I have love and affection for all of it. But like you said earlier, I'm I'm a late stage Krakoan writer. <laughs> you know, by the time I got there, we already knew the end game. So I didn't really have the same I didn't have the leeway of of standing around and having characters politic at one another as much. Like my books kind of had to fit it all in in a short amount of space. Yeah. Um, which is also fun. You know, it's it's I, I think 
Dark X-Men has more downtime than Dead X-Men does. Once Dead X-Men starts, it's it's kind of nonstop for all four issues. Dark X-Men, there's still some like, let's haunt the castle <laughs> in between <laughs> horrific moments. But but Dead X-Men is really just a, a full-blown Dave Cockrum adventure. So from from the background, from from that perspective of, of coming from the team, I know a lot of people were really upset about, you know, kind of the killing team and the Hellfire Gala after the fan vote and everything. So has some of that at least sort of calmed down? Uh, you people know, ready for the next chapter? I don't know. I've stepped away from Twitter. I'm not on there. And I, I'm, Good kind for you. Away. <laughs> I'm kind of stepping <laughs> away from Instagram, too. Um, it can be difficult. I try not to sound like too much of a grump when I talk about social media, but it, it can be difficult to navigate it as a creator because, you know, we are like the, the microest of micro celebrities. Yeah. You know, we're not, we're not celebrities, <laughs> but we are still accessible people who help guide these very larger than life characters. Um, so for instance, like in dark X-Men spoiler alert, uh, I kill Archangel. I mean, I don't personally kill Archangel, but like I was getting hate emails and stuff. It's like, guys, come, you know, it, they're comic book characters, right? There's a hundred X-Men that everybody loves. They can't all be the, the best character at any given moment. You know, we got to spread the love around. And also, you know, it's a whole era built around characters coming back from the dead. So right. like, let's maybe just not send me the 3000 word diatribe now he's gonna be fine he's you know archangel will outlive me whether or not he comes back soon so it can be difficult to keep that all in perspective while still trying to remain excited and enthusiastic and confident in the stories you're telling i think with this team we have to be honest about one of the reasons people were upset is because it's a very diverse team so to see a team that had you know uh an Asian woman and a black woman and a black bisexual guy get killed immediately after getting appointed. It's loaded and we knew it would be. And if people are upset about that forever, that is their right to be upset about forever. All I can say is that we already had a spotlight plan for them. We knew they were going to get their own book. So that played a role in let's have this big shocking moment. Let's, you know, get people riled up with the gala with what happened to Gene, what happened to Iceman, everyone else, because we know in a couple months from now, what we're going to do with these characters and the, the stage we're going to give them. So it's not my place to tell anyone they shouldn't be upset. Obviously we did it to get people, you know, hot hot blooded and interested, but it's not like thought and discussion doesn't go into this. And it's not like we didn't know. Yes. Something terrible is happening to them now, but they're going to get their own book soon. So if any of these characters had won the gala, they'd be sharing the spotlight with Cyclops and Miss Marvel and, and sink and Talon and everybody else. Instead, the five of them get their own book. So that to me worked out pretty fine. Yeah. I think it's a great trade-off. The five issues of dark X-Men just wrapped up before Christmas. Um, I know you haven't been, on on Twitter as of late, but like talking of drama, you know, people lost their damn minds, you know, about Azazel not being Nightcrawler's father. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we we learned the truth in X-Men Blue Origins number one. So did you know that before you included him in Dark X-Men? Because that'd be naughty. Yeah, yeah. Sai and I got to talk about that um like last summer. So actually okay. if you 
if you look in X-Men Blue Origins, um, Charlie Jane Anders and I both get a special thanks in the credits page. Um, I think Charlie Jane helped consult on some sensitivity issues, and I consulted on Azazel issues. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, Sai Sai discussed that with the group, and he discussed it with me and how we could kind of reflect that. So if you go back now, there are a couple moments in Dark X-Men that just, like, tease it a little bit. There's a, yep. a conversation transcript with Nightcrawler and Charles, uh, and there's there's a line from Azazel about, you know, one of his bastards or whatever. Um, but yeah, we knew we knew going in, and that's part of why I thought he was so fun to. He gets a lot of play in Dark X Men. He was a fun character to write. Um, you know, spoiler alert again, he gets killed at the end of the book by a twisted version of Nightcrawler. So it just kind of felt like a fun one-two punch for a character I would call infamous. Um, I think Azazel doesn't necessarily have a lot of fans who straight up like him. I think he's always been a controversial figure. Um, yeah. But it was fun to give him an outing where he could be really slimy and nasty and then get his comeuppance at the same time that Kurt's real parentage is revealed. So I'm assuming the trade will be out soon then for Dark X-Men? When is that slated? I actually don't know. That's a great question. I'm usually surprised by when trades come out, to be honest. I got one in the mail today. I was like, oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so, nice okay yeah Fair enough. uh i i would say probably january uh february the latest it's got to be on the way soon <laughs> yeah 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 we'll, we'll see i mean who knows with, yeah. with all the publication schedule um and I, I so you're doing spider spider woman number one um uh, we talked a little bit about that last time um i think issue two is coming out soon right it's like in the next couple weeks i think maybe today actually if it, oh okay okay all right <laughs> it would be December, and this is the last Wednesday in December. So. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah. yeah. So th- that's the tie-in with Gang War, and and I will admit we we talked about this a little bit off off camera and stuff, but I don't have the the fluency with all of the Gang War <laughs> to. So I'm going to throw myself on that sword there, and and I will not do it justice. But but tell us a little bit about what's going on and what people can expect from the series. Yeah. Well, I can say. In Spider-Woman, I kept the promise I talked about breaking earlier. You really don't have to read all of Gang War to get what's going on. Um, You should, because it's a great event for Marvel's street-level characters. But the gist of it is that uh, New York City's gang bosses, uh, Tombstone, Madame Mass, Diamondback, uh, Black Mariah, Mr. Negative, they've been fighting for territory, and it's blown up to such a degree that Spider-Man, rather than being reactive, decides to be proactive, and he assembles a group of other street-level heroes, She-Hulk, Elektra, um, Spider-Woman, Miles Morales, to, over the course of 48 hours, take them down. Um, and a lot of this blows up from Amazing Spider-Man 31, where there's a wedding that gets crashed, all this fun stuff. In Spider-Woman, uh, Jessica Drew has been looking for her lost son. So her baby, Jerry, um, Jessica, and this this is the part that sounds crazy because it comes out of a different event, but I promise in the book it's summarized very quickly. In the end of Spider-Verse, there's a weapon that cuts people out of the fabric of reality, and Mm -hmm. Jess is stabbed with that, and so for a period of time, she ceases to exist entirely. People don't even know that she's gone. They don't remember her whatsoever. When she's restored to the web of life and destiny, no one remembers her son Jerry exists. So she is on a personal crusade to find Jerry. And it very quickly points her towards Hydra. Uh, longtime fans of Spider-Woman know that Hydra's played a very large role in making her who she is. And that Viper, 
the former Madam Hydra, or sometimes Madam Hydra, uh, has personally manipulated Spider-Woman. And so she's on the trail of Hydra, and she finds out that Hydra is backing Diamondback in the gang war as a ploy to get more control in New York City. So her personal crusade and gang war collide. And in the course of our four issues, we really see her clashing with Diamondback and with Hydra as a whole as a way to get closer to Jerry. So the fact that it's part of gang war is um, convenient for Spider-Man and the rest of the team, <laughs> but uh, it's really just his personal crusade. So it's a very Spider-Woman centric story. Uh, it, it builds on her previous series and it builds on her history uh, and it ties into gang war as a whole. But if you choose just to read Spider-Woman, you won't be missing out on any key details. All you need to know is that gang bosses are fighting in New York City. Okay. Yeah. I, after reading through the first issue, it's actually very touching, you know, in terms of personal development. So I, I really enjoyed that. And, it, and and the artwork too had a had a very different feel. It's hard to describe, but there was much more of a a tactile um, approach to to the drawings, where um, like the suits, for instance, really her suit really looked like it had a plastic sort of texture and and so props yeah. to the artist yeah yeah i'm working with corolla borelli uh on this first arc and arif prianto is the colorist uh it, it's been such a blast working with them uh corolla's really game for anything so the thing about spider woman is she uh in her original series I don't, I don't think it's any secret to say they struggled to figure out what to do with her um you know she and she hulk were partially created to claim copyrights so I don't think, you know, they figured out She-Hulk a lot faster than they figured out Spider-Woman. She went through a phase where she's a private investigator. She's got spy craft backgrounds. She's a superhero. She lost her powers for a long time and kind of just hung around the X-Men books. So she's kind of got a, a rich yet uh, messy history. And in this book, we're really trying to seize on every element of it. So like issue two, I call the spy issue because it's really kind of like, the Mission Impossible spycraft. Uh, you know, issue three is really like the pound the pavement, gritty private investigator issue. Okay. Uh, and, and then issue five and beyond, we really seize on more of the superhero elements. So we're kind of trying to celebrate all quadrants of her life. Um, but again, you know, you don't need to have read all those issues to get it. It's just a way to say, yeah, we know Jess has been a lot of people. We're going to get to see all that in play here. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely refreshing having read that first issue. I didn't feel like I needed to be wired into everything that was going on with Gang War. And it set the stage really well for how the character was going to develop and, you know, who the antagonists were against her um, you know, with Diamondback and such. So I enjoyed it. It was, it was good. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, try to keep it fresh and accessible. Dead X-Men was just the rare case where I was like, this conflict's big. We're handing it back to Kieran. You should really read both. Other times I'm doing tie-ins, you can just read that and, and it'll stand alone. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to dive into my quick hit section. I'm asking five thematic, not necessarily too dark X-Men specifically. Um, I'll answer them too. You know, hopefully listeners will get to know us both a little bit better. This is sort of kind of my way of doing something silly. So um, everyone loves those character hypotheticals. So we'll have another wizard moment. Um, let's say the Hellfire Gala went off without a hitch. We're having We're headed to the after party. Um, since we're on the island, you know, there are the small matters of who exactly will be attending to the duties because we, you know, let's, let's have actual X-Men doing them and, and not staff. Um, so who's the DJ? Oh, well, you would think it'd be Dazzler because she's a 
musician. But actually, I think it'd be Prodigy because he's picked up everyone's tastes using his powers. So he knows exactly what to play to, to put the party in, into gear. Okay. I'm going with uh, Lila Cheney. So. Oh yeah! So Somebody's somebody who at your front door. Sorry, <laughs> our Alexa's our Alexa's a little overreactive. <laughs> That's quite all right. Um, yeah, but she's a rock star, you know, so it, it shouldn't be hard for her to make the transition into doing DJ work. So that, that was mine. Um, who's in charge of the light show? I think we'll probably pick the same one for this, but I don't want to keep sliding Dazzler, but I'm going to give it to Jubilee. She never gets her chance to do it, so okay. I think I think Jubes is taking over this time. I was going to go with the combo of Dazzler and Jubilee. Do it, so. Yes, I like that too. I made a little joke in the first X-Men Unlimited I did where Jubilee, Boom Boom, and, and Dazzler are annoyed that someone else is doing, are, is doing the light show. Um, we need a good vibes person to be mixing drinks. So who you got for that? Cannonball. He's got to okay. know some good like Southern drinks. I, I'm not a drinker, so I, whiskey? I don't know what people drink, but I think Cannonball's like a fun, good, low-key bartender. Okay. Yeah, I went a different direction. I was going with Zaddy Daddy Colossus because I'm, I'm picturing him, like, lights bouncing off of him, and he's just kind of chilling with a smile, serving stuff off the top shelf. So that was... Yeah, but then he's giving everyone straight, like, grain, alcohol, and vodka and getting everyone smashed because his tolerance is much higher. That's a better party, right? <laughs> um, we got to have a bouncer, so... That, that's kind of a tough job. Okay. So I don't want to say that that would be Frenzy's role. I've been picking <laughs> all dead X-Men for now, but you've been pulling from the whole. whole yeah. 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 I'm cheating. I'm cheating. Yeah. So go for it. Bouncer. Oh man. I would give it to Quentin choir okay. because everyone finds him a little annoying. He's very physically powerful. But I think even if he just starts talking to someone who's not supposed to be there, they're going to give up and go home because they're so frustrated with him. Okay. Yeah, I went with Wolverine, which is like just as, as straightforward pandering as, as anybody could. But like, right. <laughs> so he knows everybody, um, you know, having run security to detail myself and been a bouncer and stuff like this. It's just key, right? You know him. You also know what he's capable of. So he's a little mm. bit surly. But yeah, I think he's definitely got bouncer vibe down. Um, we've spoken before about your love for Scott Summers. Um, you even have, you know, a tattoo of our ocular hero there. So exactly. So a, a friend is paying for your next X-Men tattoo and, and Brian level is doing it. So, ah. <laughs> so who is it and why? Oh man. So I actually considered for a long time getting an Emma Frost tattoo, but because white ink doesn't last, it's kind of hard to figure out a good way to do it. If it's Brian, I would honestly just let him do whatever he wanted. <laughs> but now I kind of think like, okay, in the Crow 2 City of Angels, Iggy Pop has a, a tattoo that's supposed to be demons fighting, but it looks like a crow. I would let Brian do Azazel and Nightcrawler like in some sort of grand biblical clash. Wow. That's yeah. That's an investment in just space on your skin. So. You know, I got to hold back, so <laughs> he can he can have at it. And I'll I would probably be the only person with an Azazel tattoo. I hope to God I'd be the only person with an Azazel tattoo. <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody out there. But. I really hope not. 
I don't have the backspace to give because I've already got stuff there, but I would go with Archangel for sure. Yeah. Classic, yes. Yeah, yeah. Maybe on the calf. So you have like plenty of room for the wing. I can see that. Well, what else you got cooking? Um, you know, we're con- kind of continuing with one word clues when I have you on, which is the hallmark of this question, because you first gave me dark, then you gave me dead. So if you give me one word again, I'm just to assume it's X-Men and tack it on, right? Ooh. Um, okay, well, let me say the more, the more open thing, and then I'll think of a good tease, because I've, okay. I've got both. So I did say, you know, I'm doing X-Men 97. That's been revealed. Very exciting. Got to work with the animated team to, to do the script on that one. And I'm reteaming with Salva Espin, who drew X-Men 92. Um, he's changed up his style, and we have a different colorist working on this one. So it's, it's been very cool to see the, the vibe shift. Interesting. Um, okay. And it, in, it ended up f- very faithful feeling to the animated series in some really exciting ways. Uh, I also, it, I guess it's kind of like an open secret at this point, but I'm on X-Men Unlimited for a while to come. So Steve Orlando and I have been co-writing. Um, we did the Sunfire arc. We did the Firestar arc. And right now we're doing a Sunspot arc. Um, but it's already on the X-Men website or the Marvel website. So I guess it's not a huge spoiler to say Starting in January, we are doing uh, an arc that will actually continue all the way till summer. So wow. okay. rather than doing short stories, um, we're actually doing one continuous story. Um, Betsy is involved. Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain, Thunderbird, who Steve's done a lot of work with, is involved. Uh, and also some other fun characters are going to get looped into that. Uh, Danny Moonstar, who's just in Realm of X. So very excited to be on that. That will actually, by the end, be the longest single X-Men story I've worked on. Because if you count the unlimited pages, it kind of equals out to almost seven issues. So on one one hand, it's sad for seven to be (laughs) one of the longest things I've done. But in the modern era, that feels quite long. That is Uh, long. Yeah. Yeah, these days it is. So uh, very excited to be on that with Steve. And um, we're working with Phil Seavey, who's the artist on the X-Men Limited arc that's currently running. And Nick Roche, who's done um, X-Men Unlimited in the past. So they're going to alternate on and off, and we're going to be on that through the summer. I actually do have a couple other even mutant-related things that haven't been announced yet. Um, The best way I can tease that, uh, I'll say blue, and I'll say purple. Okay. And... I, that's all I can reveal for now. Okay. Okay. But, but well, I mean, I peeled. Yeah, I'll just wait and see because, like, this this, <laughs> is, this is how it goes. Um, socials are a complete mess. Uh, where would you like people to find you? Oh, sorry. The one last thing I want to cram in is that I forgot. Oh, sorry, that, yeah. um, Web of Spider Man has been announced, so that's a one shot okay. in March. Uh, I am writing Chasm and Kane for that. Two different short stories. Um, that are setting up some big fun things for later in the year. So if, if 2023 was all mutants all the time, 2024 spiders and I are getting closer than ever. Okay. Uh, and I'll be on spider woman for a while to come too. And hopefully we get to tell lots of just stories, uh, social, just my website at this point, um, stevefox.com. And that's F O X E. Uh, so like I said, I'm not on Twitter anymore and I'm probably going to bounce off of Instagram at the end of the year and just leave it on my website uh, and try to be more active on my newsletter, which is also linked on my website. Awesome. So with the, the editing gig and stuff, what's coming out that you're working right now? 
So The Deviant, uh, which James Tynan and Josh Hickson, that just launched in November, uh, that continues for nine issues. So that's a contained story. Uh, World Tree, the second arc, starts today. Uh, issue six is in stores the last Wednesday of December. Um, so that's James and Fernando Blanco and Jordi Belair and Aditya Bidikar. Um, so that's an ongoing series. We have lots of big things planned for that. And I know people have been wondering when Department of Truth is coming back. And I can say we've got a lot of cool things in motion. Uh, 2024 is definitely going to see the return of, of that storyline as well. So we've got a lot of fun things happening in Jamesville. Uh, keep, it, keep it nice and busy. The and, pitch master. Yes. <laughs> and excited to have all three of those beasts running at the same time at Image Comics. Well, Steve, it's always a pleasure to, to get you on the show and to chat and to hang out. So thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, so Dead X-Men, we're looking for dropping end of January last time. Yeah, I think it's January 31st, even. It's the it's the end of the month. So is there a 31st in January? Whatever. It's the last Wednesday of the month. <laughs> I'm having to do the 30 days, half September kind of thing in my head. Yeah, I think. April, it, June, and it, yeah, yeah, 31. Yeah. Yeah. So that launches into the month. The new unlimited arc starts first Wednesday of the month. Uh, and Spider-Woman continues somewhere in the middle of that. Awesome. Well, this is Brian O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptic Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg, but their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're gonna get 180 pages of entertainment, action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one. All you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the Department of Metahuman Affairs or DMA and check it out right now.